Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Good afternoon. Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and it's just a pleasure to be here with you today. On New Year's Eve earlier this year in Colorado, Douglas County Sheriff's Deputy Zach Parrish was killed and four other officers wounded in an ambush-style attack. And then just weeks later, Adams County Deputy Heath Gum was killed in the line of duty. And our prayers and con- condolences go out to their families, their colleagues, and loved ones. And in spite of the dangers that law enforcement professionals face every day in the line of duty, recently police have come under greater scrutiny. Ferguson in 2014 and Charlottesville in 2017 are just two events that have contributed to the debate about police response, tactics, and training. And law enforcement are now under a microscope and in front of and behind video cameras. Now, more frequently, citizens are capturing police encounters on video And police officers' own body cameras are also providing us with more information. Now, we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at policing on today's show. My guest is Thor Eels, president of the National Tactical Officers Association, and he's going to provide insight into law enforcement tactics for critical incidents and acts of targeted violence. But first, today's show is brought to you by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who, set the, who has the only advanced safety education training program of its kind with an accredited CEU. To learn more about SSI Guardian, go to SSIGuardian.com and tell them Dr. Pegg sent you. Now, again, I'm here every Thursday from 1 to 2 Mountain on KLZ 560 and online at DrPegRadio.com. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, Check out my program archives at drpegradio.com. I have with me in the studio today, and we're live today, Thor Eels, president of the National Tactical Officers Association. And the National Tactical Officers Association serves to enhance the performance of law enforcement personnel from all specialties and to improve public safety and domestic security through training, education, and tactical excellence. Thor Eels, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, you know, with a name like Thor and even a voice like that, people probably stand up and take listen when you speak and tell them to do something, don't they? (laughs) Well, we hope so. It makes things a little bit easier. (laughs) There you go. Well, when we think of law enforcement, uh, most people, including myself, uh, think of police officers um, on patrol, I guess. Uh, But really, NTOA serves law enforcement professionals from a variety of of specialties, um, from patrol to corrections, even canine. Um, crisis nego- negotiators and all and, and other specialties. That's pretty interesting. That's correct. Uh, we were originally created with the specific target of SWAT teams, mm. tactical mm-hmm. teams. But over the years, as the emerging threats have grown, we felt there was a need for us to broaden our uh, expertise and sharing it with the different disciplines within law enforcement. And we've been very successful in doing mm-hmm. that. And you have, you have thousands of members. We do. We have over 40,000 members from across the United States, Canada, as well as internationally. Wow, excellent. Outstanding. And we'll talk more about the kind of training and programs that you offered. Uh, But one thing that we do talk a lot about on this show, uh, because it's happening more and more, 
um, and, and it's such a serious uh, a situation, are the violent shooting incidents, the mass shootings that we're seeing that are happening so frequently, like Las Vegas. Uh, you and I were just both recently uh, in Las Vegas. You were at, at, at an event a, a week or two ago. I just returned uh, yesterday from Vegas. Uh, and so that was on everyone's mind. Uh, things like the Rancho Tahama Rampage in California. Um, to, let's talk about active shooting incidents. First of all, uh, how do we define an active shooting? We hear the term mass shooting, targeted violence. Uh, give us a good working definition for today's show. Well, it's interesting that you ask that because the definition is changing. Mm -hmm. uh, the most contemporary uh, definition now that is being utilized is mass casualty incidents mm -hmm. versus active shooter. But really, they are still one and the same. And quite honestly, I think it's probably perhaps a little bit of semantics, mm -hmm. uh, the end result is still equally catastrophic. Right. And so we look at an active shooter in law enforcement as one in which a suspect is actively killing or attempting to kill innocent people and continues to do so as long as they have some access to additional victims. Mm. And so the, the, the term shooting is really um, doesn't capture anymore what what's occurring. We're seeing weapon, um, cars being used as weapons, for example, in Charlottesville. Correct. Uh, New York City mm -hmm. uh, had a yeah. similar incident. That's We've right. seen it in Europe and other uh, parts of the country and, and world. So uh, that's why I think there's been uh, the shift toward the mass casualty because the conduit to the injury is really not quite as important as the intent, the actual action mm -hmm. that has taken place, and then the end result, which is mass casualties, right. people being seriously injured or killed. Right, and even even in terms of the number of people to qualify as mass casualty, that's changed over time as well, hasn't it? It has. Mm -hmm. Well, and again... Really, even one life lost it, to, due to targeted violence is is unacceptable. And so, your organization works to uh, provide the tactics and train tactical training and and new information and research to to help officers keep us all safe. That's our goal. Absolutely wonderful. Now, let's talk about some of the statistics, um, FBI stats, for example, um, in terms of how prevalent is this really. Uh, it seems like. Almost every week we're reading or hearing about another uh, mass casualty, in casualty incident that either uh, was executed or was thwarted by law enforcement. Yes. So last year, uh, 2017, depending on which database you were to look mm -hmm. at, there were in excess of 300 active shooter mass casualty mm -hmm. incidents. And 2017 was unfortunately the deadliest to date. Wow. Uh, so far this year, and we're just now... 1st of February, yeah. we've had, again, depending on your uh, database, between 11 and 13 uh, active shooter mass casualty incidents wow. already. Wow. Now, and then there's folks who are being killed and also those wounded. And then also, I had a woman on my show um, a couple months ago who was a survivor of Virginia Tech, and she talks about the physically uninjured survivors. Right. So often in these stats, we have those killed, those wounded, but there are still a whole lot of other survivors. Definitely. And those are very, very difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. But certainly I think we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't believe that anybody who was in near proximity of an incident of that uh, terror, magnitude of terror, mm -hmm. uh, isn't somewhat, if not radically, changed yeah. for, for life. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So let's talk about what can be done. 
um, from a law enforcement point of view, what would you tell our listeners of uh, how to think about uh, these mass casualty attacks and incidents that seem to be on the rise? Um, you talk about that time is not always on our side. So just let's talk about, well, what do we do if we find ourselves at a concert, uh, at a Walmart? We had a shooting here locally in a Walmart, uh, in a theater, um, out with our families, in a school, in our workplace. What do we need to be thinking about? Well, what I uh, teach my family mm-hmm. is to think about this ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And that's really the best utilization of time. And historically, law enforcement has taught officers and even up through command level that time is on our side. Slow things down. Time is on our side. We get enough resources uh, on scene and then we can begin to do things. And what we found through the horror of Columbine and reexamining active shooter is we found that actually time really needs to be defined. Mm. And so now we break time and the definition of it down into good time and bad time. Mm. Bad time being that in which we're behind the power curve. So the shooting has begun, is access to victims, uh, we're playing catch up. That's all bad time. Good time is what we are able to do once we have the resources there, we begin to apply those resources to save lives. Mm-hmm. But good time also is preventative time. It's time right now in which we at schools can be doing things like taking a look at the, the architecture of the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there things that we can do to enhance the safety of our kids is one component of good time. Mm -hmm. The other, as you just mentioned, is if you're going to a movie theater, where do you sit? And what would you do if, God forbid, something horrific begins to take place or a Walmart and stuff? So it's a sense of awareness, really, Mm -hmm. and thinking about what would you do beforehand because often, if we haven't thought about it, people get frozen in the moment, and right. that's when they become a potential victim. Yes, and that's one of the goals of this program. We talk a lot about mental health, wellness, and safety, and uh, to raise awareness of before something happens. And it's not even so much anymore as if, it's when and will you be there when it happens, uh, but to raise awareness and ask those what-if questions. I appreciate you saying that. So good time is all of this time starting from right now. Someone may be driving in their car right now, sitting in their office cubicle, listening, streaming online, and they're hearing us talk about good time and preventing bad time or minimizing the damage during bad time. It really is right now, wherever you are, what would you do if? So give us some scenarios of where people might be right now as they're listening. What would they do if and what what are some options? Well, it's really understanding to some degree, playing the odds and the vulnerabilities. So we know about 45% of active shooter incidents take place in uh, a business mm-hmm. or a place of commerce. Right. So if you're at work, um, do you have an escape plan? Have you thought about what if a disgruntled employee comes in or a mm-hmm. customer or something along those lines, depending on the type of business you're involved in and how would you react to that? What could you do to assist in your safety, the safety of fellow coworkers? How do you remove yourself from that threat and minimize the potential victims? Mm-hmm. Um, school, having the conversations with your children. You know, what plans has the school implemented? Are you aware of the plans? Have you sat down with your children to ensure that they really understand what the expectations of them is should an incident take place? And if not, should you be 
reaching out to the school, ensuring those conversations are taking place. And for the most part, they have today. But I still think it's always a good thing for a parent to be on the same page as their children and understanding really what we want them to do uh, should an incident uh, take place. Absolutely. And where you focus on working with the law enforcement professional, uh, our sponsor, SSI Guardian, has advanced active shooter training. And one of the things that is taught in those, in those programs is that mental imaging and the what if questions and kind of literally finding where would you hide if, if you needed to, thinking about wherever you are, your workplace, your school. Uh, and I appreciate you talking about um, parents need to be having these conversations with our children and with school administrators. I spoke to a mother uh, just the other day who had received a text from her son saying the school was on lockdown and he was afraid they were going to die. She's getting that text from her son prior to even receiving a notification from the school that the school is on lockdown. So their notification system hadn't even yet been activated and she's receiving a text from her son. And uh, I just talked with her about uh, speaking with him about what happened, you know, and what can be done in the future, and even monitoring him to make sure that he wasn't traumatized. They survived. Everyone was okay. Um, but it was very traumatizing for her son. He literally thought he was going to die. Yeah, it's very scary. And I think we can, to some extent, mitigate that fear uh, through an honest dialogue with mm -hmm. the children. I think sometimes we underestimate the intelligence of our kids and their ability to really uh, process that. And the fear of the unknown is much greater than the known. That's right. And so by having that conversation, recognizing that there's some evil out there and being prepared for it and having uh, the ability to self-help mm -hmm. is, is important. And you are correct. Um, SSI Guardian is probably one of the premier uh, programs that can be used in good time mm -hmm. to help people be fully prepared uh, prior to an incident transpiring. Mm -hmm. Now you talked earlier about school architecture. Can we talk briefly, briefly about that? We just have a, a couple of minutes about school architecture and even locks. And we talked about lockdowns. Um, what can you say about that? What do we need to be mindful of? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the sad thing is schools that were built in the 1950s with fear of nuclear war are probably safer schools with regard to an active shooter incident than the newer contemporary modern open design with the open classroom concept and no doors and things of that nature, which provide greater vulnerability uh, in this type of scenario. They may be more aesthetically pleasing, but they're unfortunately not the type of architecture or facility that can be properly uh, secured to prevent access from a, a, a violent assailant to potential victims. Mm -hmm. And so w what we've tried to do is work with schools in uh, designing and then building facilities that can be aesthetically pleasing to some degree, but really the paramount goal being that of safety and having doors that are secure, that don't have windows where people can easily look in and spot and identify potential victims, that have robust locking mechanisms that with simply a push of a button, throw a, a bolt that truly secure the door uh, in a manner in which it can't be easily breached or, mm -hmm. or forced open. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so those, again, are conversations that concerned citizens, taxpayers can have with their local school districts about what kind of uh, doors, locks, architecture, what renovations, any new bonds that are being put forth for new buildings. All that are, are conversations we can all be having, thinking about. 
I would agree. And, and it's all a, just a part of being involved and paying mm-hmm. attention to what's going on. And if, if uh, a person, a parent doesn't feel like they have adequate training to make those types of recommendations, it's very simple for them to ask someone within their local law enforcement agency to be part of that, to make recommendations on their behalf and mm-hmm. to provide that input. Yeah. And that's a relationship we can all have with local law enforcement, uh, whether it's a school resource officer or the officers on the beat in our neighborhood, is to uh, have conversations with them, invite them into your public meetings, into your PTA meetings, those kinds of things, and really um, begin to develop those relationships. Um, I'm speaking with Thor Eels, and he's president of the National Tactical Officers Association. And we're going to shift gears when we come back and take a look at the balancing between security and personal liberties and some of the police tactics that law enforcement use today. Uh, Don't go away. We'll be back with Thor Ells when we return. Stay with us. Are you prepared for a sudden cardiac arrest? Having an AED is simply not enough. School athletic coaches are required to have CPR and AED training, but they can only save a life with properly functioning and maintained equipment. Maintain compliance and reduce your liability with AED program management from SSI Guardian. Buy an AED and receive a two-year management program for free. Call us today at 877-878-5800 or visit us at SSIGuardian.com. What if a psychologist with years of experience wrote a book revealing secrets that therapists know but usually don't share? And what if that book provided effective strategies for experiencing lasting change? That's exactly what you get with Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark's book, Do Something Different for a Change, an insider's guide to what your therapist knows but may not tell you. Celebrating 10 years in print, this self-help classic shares critical insights to help you understand and overcome the three common barriers to change, heal your emotional pain and emptiness, and strengthen your connection to your true self and others. In the easy-to-understand, down-to-earth style she's known for, Dr. Pegg clearly communicates fundamental principles and strategies for change and personal transformation. Read Do Something Different for a Change today and have a better tomorrow. Go to drpegradio.com slash books to purchase your copy today. Studies show that safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit SSIGuardian.com. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. And if you're feeling stuck and ready for change, I'd like to personally extend an invitation to you to attend my March 4th Do Something Different for Change Personal Transformation Retreat on Saturday, March 3rd, 2018 in Denver. If you want to change in one or more areas of your life or you're feeling stuck and need strategies to reach your personal or career goals, join me for this one-of-a-kind day of refreshing reflection and refocus. March 4th on March 3rd in Denver. Register at drpegonline.com slash retreat. 
And my guest today is Thor Eels, and he's the president of the National Tactical Officers Association. We're live in the studio today, so if you'd like to join the conversation and ask Thor Eels a question, you can call us now at 303-477-5600. And Thor Eels, thanks so much again for being with me today in the studio. Thank you. I appreciate being here. And how can listeners connect with you and learn more about NTOA? Well, our website is uh, simple, ntoa.org, and uh, can be accessed. And we have uh, a lot of information about the association, what we do, and uh, all contact information, types of courses, it's, uh, things of that nature are all found on that website. Okay, and it's open only to, to uh, law enforcement professionals, or could a layperson who's interested in learning more about police tactics um, be involved? The classes themselves are closed to sworn law enforcement. Okay. All right, great. And I'll have a link to Thor Eels on my website, drpegradio.com. And if you want to share this interview with someone you know, or you missed last week's episode, or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, uh, check out my program archives, again, at drpegradio.com. Uh, so let's um, talk about that balancing act between security and personal liberty, because there are things that uh, uh, law enforcement could do to keep us safer and more secure. Um, there's been talk, for example, of um, metal detectors, you know, in Las Vegas, and, um, you know, searching people uh, and uh, monitoring people. But, you know, we give up some of that uh, personal uh, liberty when we, when we focus solely on security. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you're absolutely correct. Um, Following the Las Vegas tragedy, I was contacted by the media who had asked if there was anything that had been done to prevent that. Mm. And I think I shocked them when I said, well, perhaps. And they wanted to know what that would entail. And essentially, it's called a national security event, mm. uh, similar to the Super Bowl, where you lock down airspace. Mm. Um, you mobilize federal, state, county, municipal law enforcement assets. The problem with that is what we just spoke to is that you're going to give up significant personal liberties for that and the unattached or unintended consequence, uh, although it can be forecasted, is cost. Mm. So that cost to, to go to that concert, the ticket, instead of being $50, would be $500 mm. to pay for the types of security that would be necessary to, uh, I guess, greater enhance the, the personal security a person might feel. Mm -hmm. But that, that is what uh, people live with. I mean, if you talk to Europeans who've lived with terrorism for a period of time or people that have uh, experienced living in the Middle East mm -hmm. uh, where they have threats of terrorism or violence on a greater basis, they have given up certain personal freedoms that here in the United States, most Americans have not really uh, openly accepted. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at... The complaints you hear when you stand in the line at an airport just trying to get through yeah. uh, uh, airport security to get to your gate. Yeah. Um, that's a minor inconvenience compared to what others have had to implement to improve their safety. Right. And, and we, we groan about that, taking off your shoes and your belt and your right. liquids, and it would be a lot uh, more invasive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we know that um, the attacks on police officers are they're 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 happening. That's really grown in recent recent years. Fatal attacks uh, here locally. I mentioned in the introduction on New Year's Eve, uh, Douglas County Sheriff's deputy Zach Parrish was killed, and four other officers wounded in an ambush style attack 
A few weeks later, we had another uh, deputy was killed in the line of duty, and that's happening all over the country. Colorado's not unique. Uh, in a Pew survey last year, about 9 in 10 officers say their colleagues worry more about their personal safety, uh, a level of concern that was recorded even before the eight officers who died in separate ambush-style attacks in Dallas and Baton Rouge, if you re recall that over a year ago. Uh, are you seeing this concern with officers that you work with and train? They're concerned about um, b literally being killed in the line of duty. There's no question that that is a legitimate concern that has been, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, been expressed to us very, very clearly. Mm -hmm. In fact, so much so that just uh, a little over a year, year and a half ago, we designed and implemented a police counter ambush training course mm. for this sole purpose. I and mean, we'd gone years in which law enforcement really had not addressed the potential for ambushes uh, as part of their basic training or even their in-service training. And now there's a much greater need for it, and we're getting a lot of interest in that and people mm. attending that. Um, just the numbers themselves, I think, support the fact that we are facing not only gr uh, the greater number of violent incidents and attacks towards officer, but the weaponry that is being used against officers has much greater lethality, meaning uh, we're facing more rifle-type attacks. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, other findings from the Pew survey uh, that came out uh, last year uh, unders underscore the um, emotional toll that police work can take on officers. On the one hand, we're, we're, um, officers are saying more and more they've been thanked by someone for their service, and I think people go out of their way to thank um, veterans and um, active service people and law enforcement, uh, but at the same time where they're being thanked for their service, they're also reporting that um, they've been verbally abused. Um, uh, Two-thirds of those surveys surveyed say they'd been verbally abused by a member of their community, and a third have fought or physically struggled with a suspect. Um, so there's kind of that, thank you for your service, and yet um, being attacked or verbally abused. Uh, a majority of officers in the survey, 58%, say their work nearly always or often makes them feel proud, but nearly the same uh, percentage, 51%, say the job often frustrates them, and more than half say their job has made them more callous. So let's talk about that emotional toll. I'm a psychologist. The show is called Living Well with Dr. Pegg. Um, what do officers need to do or learn or how do they need to be trained to manage the stress and prevent the burnout that um, apparently can occur with a, a law enforcement a, a career? Well, obviously, that is the $64 million question, yeah. and if we're ever able to come up with the perfect answer, uh, we would all be better off. I think the most difficult challenge, at least that I personally experienced and what I was able to learn from early on, which helped in my 30-year career, was the need to separate the personal from the professional. So personal attacks are one thing, professional attacks are another thing. Uh, but also it's recognizing y what you're able to control and what you can't control. Mm -hmm. So it's a waste of a lot of time, energy, and effort uh, getting frustrated over things that we have absolutely no control, whether it's budget, staffing, manpower, uh, those types of things. Uh, 
officers frequently get frustrated with the media's portrayal Mm -hmm. of them over a singular incident that may happen five states removed from where they're working. Uh, But they can't be frustrated by that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is not a reflection on them. They can only control what they can control. And I think we need to have a greater sense of emphasis on resilience Mm -hmm. and instilling that resilience in our officers by helping them appreciate their worth, their value in what they're doing, and then recognizing what the limitations are Mm -hmm. of their profession. Right. And that's, that's so good. Resilience is that ability to bounce back uh, following a, a traumatic uh, incidence or occurrence. And I had a guest on my show, uh, Dr. George Everly, who wrote a book called Psychological Body Armor. And he talked about the importance of resilience and also the importance of something called resistance, is building that capacity um, before something happens. So resilience is bouncing back after, but what if we could actually create this bot psychological body armor before anything happens, and then you don't need to bounce back because you're doing well. Uh, so that would be something really important, it sounds like, to include in law enforcement training. It is, but uh, the caveat I guess I would attach to that is we don't want to be calloused. Mm-hmm. So in building that, uh, that body armor, what you don't want to do is be cynical. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. don't want to uh, always think the worst. We plan for the worst. We expect the worst for our safety, mm-hmm. but you have to do it in a, in a manner in which you still recognize that the vast, vast majority of the people that we interact with on a daily basis mm-hmm. are really good people. Right, good. We just happen to catch them at a bad moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a good point. We want to be able to protect ourselves psychologically, but still be vulnerable enough to connect with humanity. Correct. Yeah. Excellent. Um, there's also something um, uh, called professional quality of life that looks at um, um, the good parts of helping, the wonderful parts of being a law enforcement officer, as, as we've talked about, that people do appreciate you. And uh, the vast majority of citizens you interact with, you have great interactions. Uh, But there's also something called uh, compassion fatigue, the bad parts of helping professions like law enforcement and trying to minimize um, that vicarious trauma and secondary trauma and and, um, trauma that comes from the helping professions. So that's something uh, that that we all want to be mindful of for ourselves, not just law enforcement. Now, we talked about uh, law enforcement coming under uh, greater scrutiny, um, and the Pew survey that I mentioned earlier um, showed that uh, there's these concerns that officers have do have a real impact on how officers do their jobs. Um, in the survey, three-quarters of officers surveyed uh, reported they are hesitant to use force, even when appropriate, and are less willing to stop and question suspicious people. Uh, 93% said they're more concerned about safety, Um, 72% said they they or their colleagues are more reluctant to stop and question people. Um, Talk about um, how that really plays out in the work that you do with law enforcement officers, that these concerns are actually starting to affect how how they do business. Well, what you're referring to, I think, has been commonly uh, categorized as the Ferguson effect. Mm -hmm. And I think my personal experience with that has been, uh, there's some truth to that, but I have found that most officers are still filled with the sense of duty that when they feel that something wrong is occurring, they're going to intervene. Mm -hmm. 
fortunately, my association is dealing with people that really tend to be um, very, very professional, always seeking self-improvement, always looking for ways to do their job a little bit better, safer, more effectively. Mm -hmm. And so we're not as exposed to perhaps a greater sense of some that are more frustrated or apathetic in their role. But there's no question that one of the challenges that law enforcement leaders have today is uh, keeping people focused, keeping people motivated, um, keeping their morale up, their attitudes Mm -hmm. positive. uh, And it is as challenging today as it has ever been, Mm -hmm. no question. Yeah. Well, an official report uh, that uh, came out about uh, police tactics in Charlottesville, uh, where, as we all know, um, people were injured um, surrounding a rally where a woman was killed uh, when a man drove his car into a crowd of counter-protesters. And we talked about uh, these mass casualty events don't always involve firearms. Um, so the report um, criticized police planning uh, in the Charlottesville incident. Um, and they, they cited some facts of things that could have been done better Uh, But law enforcement really often is villainized. Can you talk about um, the impact that that has and what can be done about that? Well, it does have a detrimental effect. Um, You know, even when you do things right, if you're criticized and uh, demonized for it, it's hard to get up and and want to do the right thing again the next Mm -hmm. time. But it's not really an excuse. I mean, the the sad thing is what happened in Charlottesville was preventable Mm -hmm. to some degree by law enforcement and their planning, but we have become victim to our own success. You know, we went many, many years without really needing a lot of crowd control training in contemporary law enforcement. And so where we had that capacity 20, 30 years ago, um, because it was expensive to maintain the personnel, to purchase the equipment, to provide the training, agencies have drifted away from that. And so the sole discretionary resource for law enforcement agencies and civil disobedience are SWAT teams. Mm. Well, SWAT teams are not the answer to that problem. Right. I mean, that's bringing a hammer to a nail and the nail is not there. Um, and or so, sledgehammer or a sledgehammer, to a nail. <laughs> correct. And so that is, you know, we've put ourselves in that position to some extent, mm. some of its political uh, pressures, a lot of its funding, um, but there are ways to handle this. And, um, you know, we have the training now that we're involved in, in training agencies uh, in the Northeast, Baltimore, that area. We've spent a lot of time training them and getting them better prepared to have better responses that are more appropriate than SWAT teams in those kind of Mm -hmm. environments. Absolutely. Um, So uh, what would that training look like um, that, that, that a lay person could, could understand and kind of wrap our brains around that when we're at a public protest ourselves or a family member is there, you know, we just had the Women's March, you know, millions of people came out around the country. What do we need to be, uh, what do we need to understand about law enforcement response and training and what they're trying to do in that kind of crowd control? Well, law enforcement's primary mission there is safety, Mm -hmm. is to protect lives and to ensure that, particularly in a demonstration, that in this country, that the protesters have the opportunity to exercise their First Amendment rights in an environment that is safe. Mm -hmm. And that the counter-protesters have that same right, and that same right to not only exercise their free speech, but to a safe environment. Mm -hmm. So law enforcement has the expertise 
and goes through great pains to ensure that that is an opportunity. But when we have people that begin to actually disobey the law and take it upon themselves to engage in violent behavior, law enforcement's going to have to act Mm -hmm. uh, for the safety of all. And I think what is lost is that law enforcement is not there to actively engage in some kind of violence. I mean, our whole primary purpose there is to avoid it. Mm -hmm. But when lawful orders begin to be given, people need to obey them as quickly as they possibly can. And so, again, as um, you discussed, sometimes, as they call it, the optics of showing up in SWAT gear to a peaceful protest, maybe there's an anticipation something could happen, but that might contribute to the protesters feeling that, you know, what's going on? We're protesting safely. Uh, But when a lawful command is given, we've got to respond to that as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, when we come back, we'll talk about uh, body cams or uh, technically called body-worn cameras. I learned that from you. I'm speaking with Thor Eels. He's the president of the National Tactical Officers Association. And we'll learn more about body cams, uh, the pros and the cons, when we come back. Stay with us. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Do you ever make changes, but after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join me for a one-day, do-something-different-for-a-change personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com retreat. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. I've been speaking with Thor Eels about tactical response and training for law enforcement professionals. And if you have a question for Thor, you can call us at 303-477-5600. And if you'd like to connect with Thor outside of the show or share this interview with a friend, go to drpegradio.com for his contact info in the program archives. And again, join me on March 3rd to March 4th into your future for Do Something Different for Change Personal Transformation Retreat, go to drpegradio.com slash retreat to register today. Uh, we have a call. Uh, Bruce, welcome to the program. 
Hey, Doc. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, Thor. The, well, the question I wanted to ask you is uh, there's been quite a few cities who have instructed their officers to violate federal law when it comes to terms of people unlawfully present in the country, uh, almost in a way similar to what the uh, uh, governments of the 1950s and 60s South did in regards to civil rights when they refused to comply with federal law about civil rights. And from an ethical sense, how do the individual officers deal with this uh, practice well Bruce uh, obviously I would I would say that's a little bit of a loaded question uh, but absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, no pun the, intended <laughs> right uh, the average officer day-to-day really does not get caught up too much in, in, in the politics of those types of decisions um, when an officer is interacting with an individual really what they're evaluating is whether that person has been engaged in some degree of illegal criminal activity in which the officer can then subsequently arrest them. The policies that you're talking about really are not in that officers don't intervene or interact in a crime in progress, but are really what happened post-arrest as to whether that agency then has a duty to notify uh, Homeland Security and their personnel, and then those procedures begin to uh, be implemented. But the officer on the street, for the most part, is still looking at the incident in of itself in that um, totality of circumstances as to whether they're going to take some sort of enforcement action. However, doesn't every officer take an oath to uphold not only really municipal ordinances, but really state law and federal law? Isn't that in their oath of office? Uh, in some, yes, but primarily their oath of, it, it's, not, it's not the same oath as the military takes. So their, uh, their primary oath is to, yeah, if you're a city, it's to your municipal charter. If it's county, it's to the county government. But we do, we are sworn to uh, uphold and defend the Constitution, yes. Right, and basically... That's not what's happening. We have basically city governments ordering our officers to be willfully uh, ignoring federal law. And really, you know, uh, see, I've had this conversation before, and I took this opportunity to really engage a thing again, because if you look at uh, people driving, if they don't have a license, they're committing a crime. And illegals generally can't get licenses. And, of course, if you're dealing with any male between the ages of 18 and 26, if that illegal, if that unlawfully present male has not registered for the draft, he is committing a felony because it's still on the books that every male in our country between those ages has to register for the draft, even though there is no draft. And that's a felony. Well, I, I, w- I will tell you, I spent 30 years as in, in law enforcement, and I'm not aware of a singular incident in which anyone was ever arrested and charged with that. Um, I mean, that is not the type of offense that local law enforcement, either a city police officer or a county deputy, is engaged in enforcing. And with regard to, you know, the 
the difference between what law enforcement is f- enforcing in federal issues. Um, marijuana is an issue. You know, you have states that have legalized marijuana. Uh, clearly, the feds have not legalized that. I mean, there are a number of issues that we could probably address with regard to uh, local versus federal um, discrepancies in what is going to be enforced or not. Um, but I will tell you that is not an officer's decision to make. I mean, that is being made at much, much higher levels than they are. And their primary purpose is simply to be out there and to ensure the safety on a day-to-day basis. Thank you. Thanks so much, Bruce, for calling in. We appreciate you listening. And again, listeners, you can call in at 303-477-5600. Let's talk about those body cameras, body-worn cameras. Um, What are the pros and cons of those? Because we're seeing, we're actually seeing the footage now more and more. We are. And I think clearly what law enforcement and the to some degree the public is seeing is that um, law enforcement behavior is not as purported as being bad. I mean, what we're finding is that probably 80% of the cases is the last numbers roughly that I'd seen in which, you know, civilian complaints being made against officers alleging misconduct are uh, proven to be false. So, uh, that's certainly probably the one of the pros. Uh, the cons still exist in that that it provides still one dimension of a 360-degree problem. So wherever that camera is pointed at that time gives a singular perspective of really a much larger issue that's taken place. And so sometimes they simply aren't this silver bullet, the panacea that people think it's going to be, that it, it's absolutely factual, it's always correct. Uh, that's not necessarily true. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears and talk about um, uh, uh, something near and dear to my heart is uh, people living with mental illness. And we've seen across the country um, police shootings involving uh, folks with mental illness. Uh, they may be b- behaving erratically, um, usually, but, you know, their, their behavior is calling, uh, is, is uh, um, people are noticing something's not right here. Uh, that what gets them in trouble is not responding to police commands um, because perhaps they're uh, hearing voices, they're hallucinating, and so they're not responsive to what's happening around them, behaving erratically, and then not responding to the command of the police. Uh, and they, uh, in many cases, um, are, are shot. Um, they may not have necessarily been dangerous, is, is why the public is outraged. Um, uh, do you have any examples where there has been a police shooting of a person with mental illness that could have been avoided? And how, how are police officers being trained to avoid that? Well, it's always difficult uh, to, I would say, criticize some of those a- actions unless they're you know, very, very egregious or glaring. And, and I'm not f- familiar with too many of them, not to say that it hasn't happened. Certainly it's a perception issue. Um, what I would say is that I think law enforcement has become much more aware of gaps in training for our officers and first responders. You know, unfortunately, when we decriminalized mental illness in the 60s, you know, at that time we put roughly 700,000 quote-unquote criminally mentally ill into the population. Today, those numbers are estimated to be somewhere roughly near two to two and a half million people that are that acutely mentally ill that they could and maybe even argumentatively be hospitalized. Mm -hmm. 
we don't have those types of facilities and we don't have the infrastructure to support the mental health uh, epidemic that we have currently in this country. And so by default, police officers have become the go-to problem solvers and we don't have that type of training. Having said that, law enforcement has begun to seek that training and begun to implement programs such as mental health first aid for first responders, which is anywhere from an eight to 16 hour course where we train our officers in better recognizing some of the behaviors, providing them with different strategies, approaching and trying to talk people um, to people in a manner which isn't necessarily threatening or increasing the volatility of the situation. We have a 40-hour crisis intervention team training program that we're providing our uh, officers with training. They do a lot of role-playing in that. They have a lot of expertise uh, given to them uh, by people such as yourself with their background and how to recognize different types of mental illness and what are the best strategies and approaches to that. Unfortunately, what I think is lost, and this is the, the difficulty, is that an officer who's inserted into that type of situation in which it is so volatile, in which there is a weapon present, they don't always have the time to be able to go through all of these methodologies and instruction that they've received to determine. I mean, the person, the, their, their mindset is, is this person in imminent danger to others? Mm -hmm. And if the answer to that is yes, then they're going to have to address that. Once you can get through that, if you're afforded the opportunity to get through that, that critical time place, then they begin to hopefully utilize some of this training and these strategies that we've shared with them now, and we're getting better. Yeah. And so um, that the mental health first aid or any comparable kind of program is so valuable in, um, as you stated, recognizing the signs of mental illness, uh, understanding how to respond uh, in a mental health crisis, um, how to make a referral, uh, and how, in the rare case, to make a report if the person is dangerous. Uh, it really is a myth and a stereotype that most mentally ill people are violent. Right. Uh, in fact, um, most mentally ill people are not violent. Uh, they're more, and not all violent people are mentally ill. And uh, someone with a mental illness is more likely to become the victim of a crime than ever to become the perpetrator of a crime. Uh, and so to be able to recognize the signs that they have a mental illness and how appropriately to help them, and then in those rare instances, how to make a report that, yes, this person is dangerous. Uh, but it's good to know that uh, law enforcement um, organizations around the country are being better trained in, in recognizing those signs and intervening. And uh, crisis intervention um, team training is, is valuable. I had an, uh, an encounter with a, an Aurora Police Department uh, officer when I um, taught um, at a community college in Aurora. And um, we had a student who was suicidal, who had said, I, I think I'm gonna leave here and I wanna go kill myself. And uh, so we did um, call the police uh, to have her detained and, and evaluated. And fortunately, at that time, um, Aurora Police Department had a mental health trained officer and they came out uh, uh, in a team, two of them, uh, they evaluated her. I was so impressed with their um, quote-unquote bedside manner. They were very kind, very patient, very gentle. Um, and, and ultimately, they did have to take her away. Um, and they, they um, uh, called the ambulance, and um, she, was, she was taken to the hospital. I was concerned that, you know, she'd be very upset with us for having called the police, but I actually ran into her uh, about a month or two later, and she actually came up to me, hugged me, and thanked me. And so... 
here's a great example of where the police came in. And rather than escalating a situation or it ending up with someone getting shot, they were able to, to help. And so we really have to, to see the full picture of the, the role of law enforcement and how they really can make a difference in a volatile situation with someone with a mental illness. No doubt. And those really are the greatest percentage of cases and outcomes or what you just mentioned is what normally happens. I mean, it may be one out of a hundred that ends up uh, tragically. But I do think, to your earlier point, one of the things that we've also uh, done to go one step further is not only are we training our officers to be better in dealing with the mentally ill, we're teaching agencies to seek out better resources in these responses. And so we're starting to find agencies, you know, in Colorado Springs, they have a program where they partner with the fire department as well as a, a mental health care provider. And they have a police officer, fire paramedic, mental health worker first response to these scenes where we're bringing the expertise right there. So instead of a police officer with 40 hours of training, we're bringing somebody there with a master's degree level of training to really provide the assessment. But most importantly is post-incident, what happens to this individual? How do they better navigate the mental health care system? Where do they seek the resources to get the follow-up care? And once we can get them into that, we're better all uh, better off. Yes, I've, I've read about that more and more across the country where they're dispatching those um, first responders with a mental health professional. And um, I'm going to read a, a definition of, criti- of, of crisis intervention uh, team, the CIT teams that we're seeing all around the country uh, based on a community policing model A CIT training is a collaborative effort between police, mental health professionals, hospital emergency departments, and individuals with mental illness and their family members. And the goals of CIT training are to teach police officers how to safely engage with and respond to people in crisis, as well as to connect them to helpful resources in the community. Now, if that can get implemented across the country and work as it's designed to work, which it is working in many communities, that is awesome. Absolutely. And that is our goal. I mean, that is one of the goals of my association is we are working very, very aggressively to implement a, a program here in the near future, which is going to bring mo- many of these disciplines together in one spot, one location, so that people from all these different disciplines can access the training, but then also uh, pick from an a la carte menu mm-hmm the different types of services that might be best implemented respective to their unique communities. Wow, that's outstanding. Um, Another uh, element of the CIT training, I understand, is verbal and nonverbal de-escalation training. And that's probably the bread and butter of, I would hope, all police officers and law enforcement. If you can de-escalate a situation, whether it's with someone with a mental illness, whether it really is with someone who has just broken the law legitimately, and you can either non-verbally or verbally, quote-unquote, talk them down, that's a great thing. And we've, we've seen, um, I know in every community, we've seen wonderful officers who really have a way of communicating and a rapport, and they're known in the community. Uh, talk a little bit about just the value of that those de-escalate, de-escalation uh, training techniques. Well, contrary to belief, you are absolutely correct. I mean, it is part and parcel to police training and has been for many, many years. Uh, it is our first 
uh, goal that we don't have to put hands on and that this doesn't end in some sort of physical confrontation with anybody. If we can verbally de-escalate, allow somebody to vent for a short period of time and then guide them uh, to a peaceful resolution, that is exactly what we want to happen. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, it does happen the vast, vast majority of times. I mean, if you look at some of the studies that have been done, particularly the Harvard study, um, you will show or be able to demonstrate to people based upon the number of police contacts that are occurring daily, the percentage of times that it does end with an officer actually having to go hands-on with someone is very, very, very few Mm -hmm. and far between. So we do uh, appreciate de-escalation. We appreciate people's verbal skills. We continue to enhance enhance them and, um, and encourage them to use them First and foremost, I mean, the brain is the most powerful tool. (laughs) Absolutely. And certainly those would be skills that any of us could benefit from as managers and supervisors on the job and even parents. (laughs) Absolutely. Teenagers and maybe even toddlers. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) Well, this has been a really uh, informative uh, conversation with you today. Uh, My goal is to just give listeners some information that they may not always uh, have access to, kind of that behind-the-scenes look to the tactics that are used uh, with law enforcement and police officers and the the training that is still evolving. Um, It will always be needed. It will always be changing depending on uh, the the community, depending on what's happening in our culture today. So I really want to thank you so much for, for being my guest today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Great. And I'm speaking with Thor Eels, who's a president of the National Tactical Officers Association. And again, you can connect with him on my website, drpegradio.com. Listeners, if you need help staying focused and goal-oriented, don't forget my March 4th personal transformation retreat is on March 3rd, 2018 in Denver. Gain clarity about where you are, where you want to go, and what's holding you back and identify practical strategies to get you unstuck and achieve your goals. We're marching forth on March 3rd in Denver. Go to drpegradio.com slash retreat. My guest has been Thor Eels, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.